Dad, I'm hungry. Hello, hungry. I'm Dad. What time is it? I don't know. Keeps changing. I had a dream that I was a muffler last night, and I woke up totally exhausted. What's a pirate's favorite letter of the alphabet? Arr. Why is no one's friends with Dracula? Because he's a pain in the neck. I used to hate facial hair, but then it grew on me. Why do bears have furry coats? Fur protection. Why did chicken coops have two doors? Because if they had four, they'd be chicken sedans. What did the ocean say to the shore? Nothing. It just waved. Why are skeletons so calm? Because nothing gets under their skin. How do you make a Kleenex dance? Put a little boogie in it. What do you call sad coffee? Dispresso. What time did the man go to the dentist? 2.30. I'd like to give a big shout out to all the sidewalks for keeping me off the streets. What did the tie say to the hat? You go ahead and I'll hang around. Why couldn't the bicycle stand up by itself? It was too tired. So what do you call a fish without eyes? A Did you hear about the guy who got hit in the head with a can of soda? He was lucky it was a soft drink. How many apples grow on the tree? All of them. Well, happy Father's Day to all of you guys out there. We are thrilled that you've chosen uh, this special day to be with us here at Crossroads. We love you, we appreciate you, and uh, we hold you in high regard. Now, I think you're going to be really glad that you came today, okay, and not the golf course or anything else. I think you made a good decision. Uh, but before we continue on with our series here in just a minute, I, I want to make you aware of a really cool opportunity that you can be a part of uh, in the next few weeks. Now, if you've been around here for a little while, you may recall that, that over a year ago, we began this journey in becoming one church in multiple locations throughout the tri-state region. That, that's our vision as a church, to reach more and more people that way. Now, you may not know this, but about 70% of you live within a 15-minute radius of this campus, which tells us that we are limited in our reach simply by our location. And so in the future, we are going to have more and more locations across the tri-state region. Now, we really believe around here that the mission of Jesus does not advance based upon the gifts and abilities of a few, but we as a church are at our best when we come together to serve and sacrifice together, when we all play a part and we all have a role uh, in this journey together. And so what, what I want to do is I want to invite you to be a part of an informational meeting uh, that will be next week. We've got a slide here. Okay, it's going to be Sunday, June 25th, noon, up in room 222. Child care is provided. We're going to provide a meal, and this will be an opportunity for you to learn more about why this is the direction that we need to go as a church. We'll provide some of the uh, studies that we've done and some of the uh, just insider information that has led us to this point of realizing we have to do this. And, and this will be an opportunity also for you to have some questions answered and for you to determine what your role is going to be moving forward. 
Now, others of us here, you, you drive uh, from the west side of our community. You actually drive right by one of our future campuses, uh, Crossroads West. And some of you want to know, hey, what, what does it look like for me to be a part of Crossroads West? All right, I, I want to dial in on that part of my community where I live uh, in surrounding areas. How can I be a part of that? Now, we have some vision nights coming up that will be leading up to the launch of this campus that will happen sometime later this year. Vision night uh, will be this Friday, June 23rd, and it's actually going to take place on our West Campus, okay? Again, child care is provided. It'll last about an hour long, and this will be an opportunity for you to really experience and visualize what being a part of the West Campus uh, is going to be like. Now, above all else, if you call Crossroads home, uh, this is really important that we come together collectively praying for the future, praying for us as a church uh, that God would continue to, to move in a really big way and uh, that we wouldn't get in the way, all right? And so see your bulletin or our website, cccgo.com, for more information about that. Now, as you came in here just a few minutes ago, you probably noticed uh, PG-13 on some signs out there in the lobby or maybe on your bulletin. And, and, and here's why we put that on there. We, we didn't want you to be ambushed by something that we're going to talk about today. We are going to talk about one of the most important parts of our life that has the potential to lead us to more hurt and pain, yet at the same time, uh, a lot of fulfillment, satisfaction, pleasure, and closeness that we didn't know was possible with someone in our life. No, we're not going to be talking about watching NASCAR with somebody, all right? Today we're going to talk about sex, all right? Now, I don't know if you remember when your mom or dad had the talk with you for the very first time. Uh, I'll never forget when my dad had the talk with me. Now, you should know that my dad has never been good at having awkward conversations. He's never been good at confrontation whatsoever. So I shouldn't have been all that surprised that my dad didn't have the talk with me until the night of our rehearsal dinner. He, poured, he pulled me into a side room the night before we were to get married, and here's what he told me. If you have any questions tomorrow night, just text or call me. Thanks, Dad. Really helpful. All right. <laughs> now, one of the reasons why we talk about sex occasionally throughout the year here at Crossroads is because, if we're honest, there's no shortage of information about it around us and our culture. We're exposed to it almost at every glance. We can't get away from it. And if we're all honest with ourselves, is that really what sex is all about? What our culture tells us, is that really how it is supposed to be? And and so is it possible that what we're taught to believe about sex from culture is really a deluded, almost false version that the designer and creator of sex had in mind for us to experience in the beginning? Now, by show of hands, how many of you like uh, eating pineapple? It's one of your favorite fruits. Anybody? Yeah, several of us. It's one of my favorite fruits as well. Now, you can buy a pineapple for about $3 at a grocery store. Uh, not all that hard to find, Right. You may not know this, but about four or 500 years ago, a pineapple was considered an exotic delicacy back then. Christopher Columbus actually found a pineapple, brought it back to Spain, and then the popularity of the pineapple just, just took off, but, but it never lost its value during that time. In its prime, you're not going to believe this, but in its prime, a pineapple cost about $8,000 back then in modern-day currency. Can you believe that? It was considered the highlight of your life if you actually got to taste a pineapple. Now, when pineapples eventually spread to England, you could rent a pineapple where you could invite your closest friends and family members over to have a pineapple viewing party. I mean, what a great party. You want to join that party? Right? 
I mean, it was an exotic delicacy that was rare, and it was, it was held in high regard. Now, can you imagine if you could somehow take somebody back from the uh, 15th or 16th century, bring them into our grocery stores today, how do you think they would react when they, when they would see different pieces of pineapple cut up into a clear plastic container and the salad bar? I mean, how do you think that they would react to that? What would they say when, when they came across different pineapples stacked on top of each other in a large cardboard box in between watermelons and, and cantaloupe? They'd probably freak out a little bit, wouldn't they? Now, now here's the thing. Over time, pineapples, they aren't as special as they used to be. They aren't as rare, right? We don't hold them in as high of regard because we have more access to them. And so they're not as rare. We're not really all that unfamiliar with them. Anybody can have them. They're not all that expensive. Therefore, they aren't that special anymore, right? And you see, if we're honest with ourselves, that's how a lot of us have have gotten towards viewing sex. It, it used to be special. It, it used to be something that was, that was uh, rare. It was something that, that you were putting off, but, but then we started listening to the message of our culture, and then all of a sudden, familiarity bred contempt in your life, and all of a sudden, it, it's, it's not that special anymore. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at how God originally intended for this gift to work for us, Okay. Now, one time, uh, Jesus was asked about marriage, and uh, the religious leaders, kind of like the pastors of his day, were, were trying to uh, corner him. And, and here's how Jesus responded. He actually quotes the very first wedding ceremony that we read about between our first parents, Adam and Eve, in Genesis chapter 2. He, he responds with by saying this. Jesus says, hey, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And so they are no longer two, Jesus says, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. We've all probably heard that at weddings before, right? Now, according to Jesus right here, marriage is strictly between one man and one woman. And within the confines of marriage, this is where God intends for sex to be expressed between a husband and a wife. Now, whenever we talk about sex around here, I always throw this visual up there to help us understand it. This is, in essence, what Jesus affirms right here, that within this box between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, this is where sex is to be expressed. This is how we can enjoy it to its fullest potential. Now, you may have noticed that Jesus said that the two will become one flesh. Now, he quoted, again, the original marriage ceremony in Genesis chapter 2, and and in the Hebrew, the original language of of what God said in that moment, the the word that we get one flesh from, the word that we get united from, comes from the Hebrew word akkad, okay? It's it's a really deep and full word, and and it basically means that uh, you are not one in isolation with someone, okay, but you are one in unity. Your hearts are the same. Your, Your hearts are joined together. Now, it's also coincidental that akkad, this Hebrew word, is one of the most common words to describe the unity that God the Father has with Jesus the Son in the Holy Spirit. There, there's an overlap there. And so one of the very first things that God told our parents to do after pronouncing them akkad, one, that you are united, is to go and enjoy having sex with each other, enjoy your bodies, 
Now, if you think about it, that's really the expression of what God had told them. Because during intercourse, two bodies are connected together, but at the same time, chemicals are being released in your mind, giving you that euphoric type sensation. And as those chemicals are being released in your mind during sexual activity, you are actually physically being, or emotionally and psychologically being bound to the person before you. You are literally being attached to them. And so, in a way, sex is kind of like the bridge between what is physical, and your soul. Now, time out here for for just a second. Now, some of you walked in here today, and you've been staring at the ceiling the entire time, surprised that it hadn't caved in yet. It's your first time to church in a really long time. I want you to know we're really glad you're here, okay? You may not agree with some things that we've already talked about. That's totally okay. You don't have to believe like us in order to be welcome here. You, You don't. Now, one thing that you may believe or one thing that we're told to believe in culture is that sex is just a physical act. It's just an activity that really doesn't go beyond two bodies connecting, right? But I'd be willing to bet that you know that there's something much greater, something much deeper at play than just you uh, having a physical relationship with somebody. I mean, you know at the end of the day that, that something greater, more spiritual is happening. And you might think, well, those boundaries that you just threw up there on the TV, that might just be for you church folks, for religious folks, or those of you who are spiritual, but those boundaries don't really apply to me. Now, you have to think in terms that, that sexual activity is kind of like nutrition, okay? Now, if you drink a 24-pack of Pabst Blue Ribbon beer every night before going to sleep, you're going to eventually gain weight, right? And this is true for men as well, okay? <clears throat> now, you, the amount of weight that you gain is not determined by your ta- taste. Taste is rather subjective, right? It's really irrelevant whether you think PBR beer is good or not. No, the law of consumption applies that the more, you're, the more you consume, the more food and drink you consume, the, the bigger that your body is going to get, the more weight that you are going to gain. And, and so it really has little to do with what's subjective, but that's true for all of us because we've all been made in the same way. We're, at, at the end of the day, we've been designed in the same manner by the same creator. And so the same laws that apply according to what God says is right and true, whether you want to believe it or not, whether you believe believe that it's true or not, it, it's just, it's true. And, and I'd be willing to bet that if you were to take a second look at it, you would realize that that's the case as well, that, that something more spiritual is happening than, than just two physical bodies joining together. It's not just re- reserved for two people who choose to believe that the Bible is true, those who consider themselves religious. And so what, what does it really look like to be sexually satisfied? So what we're going to do is we're going to look at a moment uh, in the book of Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. If you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and turn there now. We're going to be in chapter 4, okay? If you don't own a Bible, there should be a black Bible right in front of you. Feel free to take that home when you leave here today. If you're worshiping with us in the chapel, it should be on one of the tables as you walked in a moment ago. Song of Songs can be found about halfway through your Bibles in between the books of uh, Ecclesiastes and, and Isaiah. Now, as you're turning there, I want to remind you, if you haven't been with us in this series, that this book was written by a guy named Solomon, who was considered to be the wisest person to have ever lived on the face of the earth. Now, at, what, at one point in his time, he was the king over Israel, okay? And this book, the Song of Songs, kind of serves as a journal or a diary for him, depicting what the journey of marriage is, looks like. And it, he, he unveils to us a lot of details, a lot of intimate moments. He doesn't hold anything back, Okay? And in chapter 4, what we're going to pick up today, he and his new bride have just gotten to Motel 6, Nat King Cole's playing in the background, okay? And they're about to have sex for the first time. 
And he doesn't hold back and understand that this is a, this is a model of what sex can look like, but it's not necessarily reality day in and day out for, for all of us, okay? But this is, this is really how God intends for it to work best. Here's what Solomon says, okay, before even uh, taking one piece of clothing off his wife. He says, behold, you are beautiful, my darling. Oh, how beautiful you are. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Now, if you're here with your wife right now, why don't you turn to her and tell her, baby, you're just like a goat. <laughs> yeah, probably not going to work out too well. You're not going to earn many points saying that. And so we have to understand the background of what's being said here. All throughout this night, we'll notice that Solomon spoke with imagery and metaphors that his new bride would have understood because she was raised in the country. She was raised in a rural setting. He communicated to her in a way that she understood, which then put her at ease in the moment. You see, one of the biggest threats to every marriage is the failure to communicate well, right? You see, the reason why we're challenged in this area is because we tend to mistake intentions for understanding. We intended to say this, but instead this is what was communicated. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've said to my wife, yeah, I know I said that, but that's not really what I meant, right? But you see, always expecting the other person to understand your intentions is kind of a form of selfishness because you're making the other person work harder for you, right? And so as we walk through this test, I just text, I want to ask every husband and wife a couple questions that we're going to pull out of this. The first question goes like this. Are, are the needs you're meeting for your spouse the needs that they want met? Are, are the needs that you're meeting for your spouse the needs that they want met? Now, just because marriage is about two people becoming one flesh doesn't mean that you all are identical, doesn't mean that, that you're the same through and through. No, the two of you are united, but you're still you. You still have your personality, your likes, and, and differences. But it is your responsibility, you see, as a husband or wife, to discover the unique needs or ways that your spouse feels the most loved. Marriage experts sometimes refer to this as identifying your spouse's love language. It's a mistake to assume that that your spouse likes to be loved in the same way that you like to be loved. You're different in that way. Look again at at verse 1, and notice how Solomon loved his bride in a way that she could understand. He says, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. You see, women need to know that they are loved before making love. And men need to to make love before they know that they are are loved. And men and women are just different, right? Right? And that's why it's been said before that when it comes to sex, guys are like microwaves and women are like crockpots, all right? It's true, and you know it. We're different. God has wired us differently on purpose with intention. Therefore, we have to understand that about each other in order to to connect. Now, I want you to notice in verse 1 how Solomon began complimenting specific features on her body beginning from the top. Now, he not only admired her eyes right here, but he said that they were like doves, okay? Now, what he was basically saying is that, hey, your eyes are beautiful, but he's also complimenting her character. He's also complimenting her her personality. He's basically saying, hey, beyond just the physical features of your body, I love you for who you are. I, I love the person that you've become. You see, God designed sex to be a form of communication where you say to the person that you've committed to, hey, I love you no matter what, and I'm not going anywhere. 
Every journey is on, every marriage is on a journey towards oneness or isolation. And you see, oftentimes the difference between the marriage that you have and the marriage that you want is a form of communication that the two of you need. Let me say that again. Oftentimes the difference between the marriage that you have and the marriage that you want is a form of communication that the two of you need. Author uh, John Powell uh, says that there are five levels of communication in every relationship that you have, and, and he really specifies this for marriage, but I think you can apply it to any relationship that you have in life, and understand that with each level of communication that you break through with your spouse, you enter into this new dimension of intimacy. So here's how he defines these five different levels. All right, the first level is, is what he refers to as the cliche level. This means that you don't really share much, there's no transparency whatsoever, and you have this kind of relationship with anyone around you. Just cliche, everyone knows it. And the second level is what he calls fact. This is sharing what you know with someone. That requires little transparency, and you have this kind of relationship with many people in your life. But to break through to that third level, that's where you get to sharing your opinions this is where you share what you think, requires some degree of transparency, and, and you have this kind of level of relationship with some people. The fourth level is emotion. This is sharing what you feel. You have this with a few people in your life, requires a lot of transparency. But then the fifth level of communication is, is what he just calls transparency. Right? It's sharing who you are with the person that you're with, and, and this requires total, complete transparency on your part. And you should only have this level of communication with one person, obviously in a marriage, but maybe a best friend as well. So you have this anywhere from one to, one to three people. Now here's the thing. Breaking through each new level of communication between you and your spouse, it requires a lot of trust and humility on your part. Why is that? Well, being transparent is uncomfortable, isn't it? I mean, the reason so many of us struggle with transparency in marriage and we hold back, and, and maybe the reason why so many of us struggle with transparency here at church is, is because of shame. You see, you know who you are and you're not proud of who you've become, and so it's much easier just to act like everything is fine and, and to put on that mask, right? On Monday night of this past week, my wife and I were lying down in bed about ready to fall asleep, and I just couldn't fall asleep. I, I knew that I had to come clean about some ways that I had screwed up the weekend before with her, and and so as I talked, I kind of avoided it at first, hoping that she would fall asleep and I could get out of talking about it with her, but she was awake, and, and so I just said, hey, you know what, there were three instances this past weekend, I don't know if you know this, but there were three instances this past weekend where I manipulated you to apologize for something that really wasn't your fault, and then what I did was I gave you the silent treatment, and I went on with my day thinking that I was better than you. I went on with my day thinking that I was more superior to you because you had to apologize. How low of me. How insecure of me. I need you to forgive me for doing that. Why did I avoid that conversation? Because it required transparency. It required me pulling off the mask and saying, hey, you, you thought this was happening, but really this was at play. I knew what I had done. I knew my sin. I knew my brokenness. I was ashamed of it. And so I thought the easiest and best alternative was just to avoid it, to deny it, suppress it. But in reality, that was leading to a, a form of slavery on my part. And so freedom didn't happen until I said, hey, I, I've got to come clean about some stuff. And so guys, you need to know that leaders go first. 
Now, being a husband and father is a call to take responsibility for your wife and your children. Now, the lack of action that you may be experiencing in bed may reflect your lack of willingness to meet her emotional needs. And whether we like it or not, your needs or your wants may not always be her needs and her wants. Now, let's go a little bit deeper with this. Based upon several conversations that I had with people in the lobby after service last night, Guys, if you are dating her or you are living with her just because she'll do anything you want, any time that you ask, whose needs are you really in it for? Whose needs are you really meeting? I mean, if you keep avoiding the whole marriage discussion because commitment makes you feel uncomfortable and you don't want to be, you don't want to be tied down to any one person, who are you really putting first? Ladies, who is he really putting first? Now, just because God has entrusted the, the leadership of the home to us men doesn't give us the right to dictate or, or demand. There's no shortage of stories out there of men who have abused their role to get what they want at the expense of, of those God has called him to protect. You see, a true man is someone who fights for the defenseless. We're called to protect those who are weak and, and vulnerable. That's why Jesus is our prime example of masculinity. Now, despite what you may think or the version of Jesus someone sold to you in your past, following Jesus does not mean that you have to give up your man card or become some weak, whiny wuss because that's not who Jesus was and that's not who Jesus is. You see, when you read through some of his biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will notice how Jesus always channeled his inner anger and temper and frustration to fight for those who couldn't fight for themselves. He always stood for what was right and true. Many of the religious leaders, the pastors of, their, of his day, were offended when he would quote Greek mythology or secular philosophers, poets, and, and other religions because he was fighting to explain to people what God is like to, to, to those who had been lost and broken and had just given up on the whole God thing. This is why one of the biggest criticisms that the Jewish leaders had for Jesus was that he drank too much alcohol in public and that he partied with too many people in their homes, really sinful people like prostitutes and tax collectors. You see, here's the thing. Jesus could have protected his reputation or he could have protected broken people from punishment, but he knew that he couldn't do both. And so here's the thing. If Jesus didn't run after sinners at all costs, he never would have found me. And he never would have found you. You see, most, not not all, but most issues that fall hardest on women and children just kind of disappear and go away when the men in their life get better. Isn't that right? Isn't that true? And so, men, this is a call for us to step up and to lead and to do this with, with grace and to do this with love. Now, each day when you wake up, for all husbands and wives, you you may not know this, but it is really a a decision before you to love him or her. You have that control. You have control over that because sometimes we think that's not true. We equate love with emotion, but really it's a decision. It's more of a decision than an emotion. And I don't know if you do this, but sometimes I will equate acts of love towards Savannah on a point system. All right, so if I leave her a note before I leave for work in the morning, that might earn me five points, okay? Okay. Or if I bring home some flowers, that's like 15 points. I take her out on a nice romantic date to her favorite restaurant, that's like 50. If I take her on a vacation, just the two of us, that's like 500 points. Or jewelry, that's like 700 points, all right? Now, texting a picture of her saying, hey, you want to have some fun tonight while standing in the bathroom mirror at work with your beer belly hanging out, guys, that's going to be like a negative 1,000 points for you, okay? It's not going to do it. Don't expect it to go well for you later that day. But you, un- you need to know that at midnight, those points go back to zero. And so each day it's a decision. Will I put her needs ahead of my own? Will I put his needs uh, ahead of my own? Let's get back to our text. Solomon did this really well. 
Look at verse 4. He said, your neck is like the Tower of David, built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Solomon said something really profound right here. All right, the tower he referred to was built for military purposes. And, and back then, it was custom for, for soldiers to hang their shields on this uh, fortress, which communicated their loyalty and allegiance to the king and, and the nation. Now, by doing so, they were telling everyone, hey, we serve the king. We are with him. Now, the warriors that Solomon specifically referred to more than likely were the soldiers that were part of the king's inner circle, okay? And so do you see the deeper point that Solomon is making here with this imagery? Before intercourse even happened, he told his new wife, he told his new wife that, that she was his one and only, that he was committed to her above all costs and no questions asked. And so here's the next question I want to ask you. In what ways do you make your spouse compete for you? All right, in what ways do you make your spouse compete for you? This seems like a pretty weird, strange question, right? But you see, the source of isolation in so many marriages today is because husbands and wives feel the need to compete for their spouse's focus, attention, and affection. Now, here's the thing. It matters very little why your spouse feels the need to get your attention. What matters most is that he or she feels that way. On the night of their wedding, Solomon didn't tell his bride how stupid it was that, that she wasn't secure about herself. Check out what he says instead in verse 7. He says, you are altogether beautiful, my darling. There's no flaw in you whatsoever. Right, one of the reasons why she lacked confidence in her physical body was because she compared herself to the cultural standard of, of beauty back then. Earlier we're told how ashamed she was of her dark skin. You see, in the ancient world, dark skin meant that you were poor. It meant that you, came from, you had a rough upbringing. And so fair or lighter skin was, was the standard back then. It, it was an indicator of true beauty. And so Solomon right here put her anxieties to rest by, by affirming her that, hey, I'm not comparing you to an ex-girlfriend right now. I'm not a, comparing you to an attractive coworker or my favorite actress. No, I'm, I'm focused on you and, and I'm committed to you no matter what. You see, one of the biggest threats to a cod, oneness in marriage, is feeling like that someone or something is between you and your spouse. Usually women have affairs because of what she hears while men have affairs because of what he sees. And so would anything change for you if you knew that it was your responsibility to make your husband or wife feel exclusive to you? Later on in his life, Solomon told some uh, younger men to be faithful to their wives by using this analogy. He said, hey guys, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. And so again, this was originally directed towards men. And Solomon compares our sexual desires right here uh, to thirst. And you know what? The longer you're thirsty, the longer you've been without water, the more desperate you are for that thirst to be quenched. And so let me ask you, what, what triggers your thirst? I mean, what circumstances make your spouse really thirsty? And more than likely, it's not just going a long time with, without sex. All right, maybe it's stress at work, it triggers thirst, or a lack of communication between the two of you, a lack of encouragement, or, or maybe it's during those moments when, when you feel a little bit down and depressed, you feel just a little bit vulnerable, you're thirsty during those moments, you need, you need to know that, you need to be aware of it. Several years ago, a friend of mine called me up, and he told me that he was moving back to the United States. He, he had been a missionary for several years in a country overseas, and it really surprised me that he was moving back, but come to find out, he said, I've had an affair. I had an affair about two weeks ago, and things have just kind of hit the fan, and, and I'm moving back. Our, my, me and my wife need, need to figure some things out. You see, come to find out, he, he had had an affair with another missionary, his wife, 
And it really shocked me, and I said, well, you know, you need to, you need to know that, that you're forgiven, and what I think about you right now in this moment is the least of your priorities, but let me just ask you this, how did this happen? Now, you see, my friend knows the Bible better than just about anybody I know. In fact, he reads the Bible in its original language in the Hebrew and Greek. I mean, he knows the Bible through and through, and so that's why it really shocked me that, that he would do this, that he would make this decision, and, but what he said surprised me. He said, well, Patrick, it, it all started with an email that that lady sent me several months ago when she encouraged me about something, and she encouraged me in a way that I hadn't been encouraged in a really long time. Translation, I was really thirsty, and I had been thirsty for a really long time. Therefore, I was disillusioned to what water really was. But when I took a drink, he basically said it, it was salt water. And I ended up thirstier, and it ended up hurting me even more. You see, affairs happen when searching for intimacy in all the wrong places. Some of you right now, you're having an affair. You're listening to my voice, you're having an affair. You're a lot closer to having an affair than, than you really think. Maybe the well before you is connecting with an old friend through social media or meeting up with somebody on Tinder or maybe it's some romance novel that you're reading behind your husband or wife's back or some porn that you're watching. Now, I don't know why you are in the place that you're in. I'm not asking you to explain yourself. I don't know your excuses, but here's what I do know. I do know that you're not free. And this isn't the life that God designed for you and intended for you to live. And, and so let me ask you, how much longer, how much longer do you really want to be paranoid about deleting certain text messages, emails, Facebook messages, or clearing the browser history on your phone? How much longer do you really want to live like that? I mean, it's really easy for me to stand up here and give you advice and say, here, here's what you should do, give it up and, and come clean, but, but let me, in all seriousness, what would happen if you put the same amount of effort into your marriage that you've put into this other relationship and the energy that it's taken to cover your tracks? Now, I don't know how you're going to get through it, and I don't know how he or she will react if you tell them what, what's really happened, but I do know that the longer it's a secret, the more it has control over you. A lot of us are, we've stopped breathing because we know that, that, that's my story. That, that's what's happened. This leads me to the last question, and I'll end with this. It goes like, goes like this. How does, how does your past keep affecting you now? How does your past keep affecting you now? Now, the decision to marry is really a decision to work through all the baggage the other person brings to the table. And, and yet, one of the reasons why many marriages fail or don't flourish on all cylinders is because your past, his or her past, is still affecting one or both of you in some ways. Take a look at what Solomon said to his wife as he detected she was struggling with this a little bit. Verse 8. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amana, from the top of Sanir, the summit of Hermon. From the lion's dens and the mountain haunts of leopards. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. Now, they were not from Kentucky, okay? Just because he refers to her as sister, that was a term of endearment in the ancient world, okay? You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. All right, Solomon's wife probably grew up in Lebanon right here and near the mountains that he mentioned. And so in verse 8, he, he basically invited her to put her upbringing behind her, to put her past behind her. But then notice how he mentions that near these mountains where she grew up, it was known for a lot of lions. There were a lot of lions around there and there were a lot of leopards, which would have struck fear and anxiety and insecurity in the hearts of everyone who lived in, in this area. 
And so basically what Solomon is telling her here is this. Hey, I know that leaving your past behind you is really scary. And saying goodbye to your family and friends and your home is is something that you're afraid of. But I'm willing to walk with you no matter what. And I want you to know that I'm going to be here with you. Now, we don't know what kind of thing Solomon's wife went through when she was younger. But chances are she came to the table. She came to this night with a whole lot of regret, with a lot of remorse. And so rather than disowning her, catch this, rather than disowning her and rejecting her, Solomon instead says, hey, I'll deal with it with you. I still choose you. And I know that it's really scary A lot of us hesitate, but one of the challenges you may be facing in your marriage is because you're unwilling to deal with certain memories or wounds from what happened to you when you were younger. I've talked with a lot of you about how it's so important that we deal with our past. And and the term that describes all of this is is the the term of shadow is a a phrase that was coined years ago by a a guy named Carl Jung. And, And all of us have a shadow. Now, your shadow are the parts of your life and your past that you're not proud of, that you want to keep hidden at all costs. And so what you do is you hide, deny, or suppress them at every chance you get. You see, it's possible to ignore something for so long that you think that it's gone, you think that it's been dealt with, but really it's not because here's what's happened. Here's what's happened for you. The more you suppress it, deny it, or, or try to hide it, the more the stuff from your past begins to just spill out sideways in other forms. This is why you've maybe thought at different moments, man, he got angry totally out of nowhere. She overreacted in that situation. Why did I do that? Or I never saw that potential for her to make that decision. Where did that come from? Well, somewhere along the way, there, there hasn't been a healthy, appropriate confrontation with the past. I mean, regret is really tough to deal with, isn't it? I'll just speak from personal experience. When I'm angry, when I'm frustrated or bitter, that's usually an indicator that I haven't forgiven myself for something. And so as a result, your past may be slowly isolating you from your wife or your husband. And so when those memories pop up in your mind, here's what we tend to do. We say, well, it was, it was his fault, or, or I shouldn't have been there. You, you were drunk, you were young, she lied to you, you didn't know any better. You were walking through a really tough time at the time. And, and you know what, those things may be totally true. But let's be honest, when was the last time that our excuses had the power to erase the guilt and shame that we all feel and walk through at different moments in time? This is why marriage really tells us about what Jesus has done for us. You see, when you say I do to the person that you love, you're signing up to love that person even when they don't deserve it. Because as great as your wedding day is, you're going to have plenty of sleepless nights, shouting matches, silent treatments, and moments where the things that attracted you to him or her will be the things that you now despise and and that you want to get rid of in that person. Isn't that true? And yet even when I was at my worst, even when I hit rock bottom and I experienced my lowest point, even when I was just a helpless mess, when I couldn't pull myself together, that's precisely when Jesus said, hey, I've got you. I choose you. You're mine. What's interesting is that God could have used a lot of different metaphors, analogies, or illustrations to describe his relationship with his children, with those who have chosen to respond to the cross, to the message of salvation and faith. He could have used a lot of illustrations to describe that relationship, but but the most common analogy we read about in the Bible is that once we make that decision, we now are part of the bride of Christ. 
And so basically what that means is that when you make that decision to respond to the grace of God in faith, choosing that it's true, even though you may not understand it completely, when that moment happens for you, in essence, you stand before Jesus completely naked. You stand before Jesus completely exposed with all of your flaws, all of your sin, all of the the dirtiness from your past in front of him. And rather than disowning you, rather than rejecting you, Jesus says, I've got you. You see, even when Jesus had every right, he's never served me with divorce papers. Why? It's because he's washed us. He's redeemed us. He can restore what's been broken. He can cleanse what you can't get rid of, what you can't let go of. That's the message uh, of Jesus. That's the message of the cross. I'm going to pray here in a minute. I'm going to pray for for a lot of our marriages, but I know for a lot of us, you're wondering, well, what's the takeaway? What's the application to today? Well, let me just throw this idea out there, okay? What I want all husbands and wives to do this week at some point is I I want you, and really I'm talking to guys, I'm gonna lean into guys right here. Guys, take your wife out on a date this week. If there's absolutely no time to do that, maybe schedule it two, three weeks out or put the kids to bed early and just have some extended time together. You're not on your phones, you're not in front of any kind of screen, okay? And it's just the two of you connected. All right, as you do that, I, I I want you to do an exercise, okay? I want the two of you to rate individually on a scale of, uh, I want you to rate your sex life on a scale of one to 10, for some of us, maybe zero to 10, all right? Come on, that's funny, all right? <laughs> and I want you to explain to your spouse why, why you chose the number that you did, okay? Now, the purpose of this is just to, again, foster communication and to put some tools in your hands to open up some communication and connection between the two of you. There are others of us in here, you, you've been living with your boyfriend or girlfriend, you've been living with your fiance, and, and that's outside of that box. That's outside of what God says is right and true and what is best for your life. And, and so here's a challenge for you. We talked about this two weeks ago. If you keep delaying the wedding, if you keep delaying marriage for whatever reason, and you're ready to, you're ready to submit to what God says is right and true in his plan for marriage, Next weekend after our last service at 12.30 in this room, I'll marry you for free, okay? The only thing that I ask, if you're de- for all couples desiring to be husband and wife, the only thing that I ask is that you bring a marriage license from the state of Indiana, okay, and invite as many family members and friends as you want as possible. I heard of one couple inviting 100 people uh, to attend services with them. I mean, that, that's awesome. They get like the most award for bringing people with them or something, all right? But what we're gonna do that day after, after the wedding, we're gonna put some tools in your hand and I want you to be open to going through some marriage counseling because that is our way of helping you start out this journey on the right foot, okay? More information up here, you can find it on our website as well, cccgo.com. Let me pray for us uh, and um, we're gonna enjoy Father's Day, all right? Let's pray. God, I know that for a lot of us in here, we've got our eye on those papers at home that we're looking to sign. We've already called our lawyer and we barely showed up today hanging on, thinking that this this is a last chance because he did that or or she did that and and she didn't come home when when she said she was going to and and he didn't follow through with his promises. And God, the truth is we we all have our reasons and, and all of our reasons are probably true and justifiable And yet, God, I I know that all of us are broken. We've all got stuff in our life that when we see it in others, it makes us cringe. We see the brokenness. It's it's obvious. And 
And yet in a way, on a much deeper level, Jesus, you saw all of that in us, our brokenness, our guilt, our mistakes, our regret, our remorse, and you still chose us. And so for that marriage that's here or listening right now, is just about ready to give up, call it quits, wave the white, right flag of surrender and move on. Lord, would you show us and would you reveal to them in a way that you never have before, that you specialize in bringing dead things back to life, that you can restore what is broken, you, you can redeem broken stories no matter how much they've screwed up. Nothing's beyond your ability to fix. Teach us more and more about who you are. Give us the grace that we need to follow through with another day. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.